One detail to make you aware of uh, high school students, um, we are meeting tonight and uh, beginning a new series tonight, um, How Can You Know That God Exists? So high school, if you haven't been there before, we meet at uh, 6 o'clock, but for those of you that have been coming, there's about 30, 35 high school students that are part of that group. So come on and join us, and uh, tonight we'll be looking at how can we know that God exists. It's the beginning of a, a 10-week study. Um, I'm going to ask you to uh, take a minute and pray with me that God would really shape our hearts as we step into this study so that we be properly prepared. And uh, for a personal thing, I'm just going to also ask that God can keep me from coughing. If you, I've been struggling with the flu over the last week, and uh, that's the only thing that seems to hang on. So if you wouldn't mind praying for me that as well. Let's pray. Father, we step into a realm that is known by a select few. Over the course of the history of this world, billions and billions of people who have lived on this planet, so very few have taken time to really examine your word, and fewer yet have taken time to look at the book of Revelation. We know, Father, that you've listed this for a purpose, that you've included it in the canon of Scripture because you want us to know the truths that are here. It makes no sense that you would write from Genesis to Jude and leave us in obscurity when it comes to the book of Revelation. So, Father, we confidently come before you asking that you would give us what we will call from a biblical definition, eyes to see and ears to hear. And, Father, beyond that, I ask for a heart to understand, not just the academic truths that are here, but the incredible story of your salvation and how you will bring it all to closure. So, Father, as people who have a willing desire to know more of you, we ask that you would now superintend over this study time that your Holy Spirit would brood over this room and that you'd give us a capacity that we've not known before to see truth and translate that truth into passion. God, we ask that in the name of Jesus, our risen King. Amen. One of the drawbacks of being a daughter or a son of a pastor is that occasionally you get used in illustrations. So Mackenzie, forgive me for doing this, but it's easy to ask for forgiveness afterwards. Um, it was probably three, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, I was watching a PBS series on television in regards to the Great Depression. And as they set up to the Great Depression, um, they studied the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, the, the Roaring Twenties got its name because of the incredible abundance that our nation knew. People from taxicab drivers to sports athletes, actors in Hollywood were taping, taking every penny they had and dumping it into the stock market, and the growth was exponential. In the midst of this PBS series, they showed clips of what it was like to live in the 1920s. And my daughter Mackenzie happened to walk through the room and saw the images appear on the screen in which a father was playing croquet with his daughter. And people were jumping in swimming pools and dressed in their Victorian clothing. It was just a really idealistic picture of the roaring 20s. And she said to me, wow. That must have been a really great time to live. 
not knowing that the images that they were capturing were from 1929. And in October of that year, everything that everyone knew was about to change. The collapse of the world's economic system led into the Great Depression. And Mackenzie could not have known that. And except for studying history in high school or in junior high, many of us have learned that what was going on behind the scenes was a setup to great turmoil across not only the United States, but across the whole world. And that Great Depression indeed did lead to turmoil across the entire globe. We went from that and ushered right into the 1940s, into World War II. Now, those of us today who are too young to remember that period of time look back and say, man, they had some cool cars back then. They listened to some wonderful big band music. I love Glenn Miller music. The big band swing was tremendous. And so when we look back on that, we say, wow, what a cool time to live, not knowing that there was rationing that took place and the turmoil across the world was incalculable. So many men being killed day after day. But we look back on this idealistic picture and then usher forward into the 1950s and see the Beave. Leave it to Beaver was on the air. And today we capture it on those television shows and think, wow, what a great time to live. But behind the scenes, the turmoil, the racial tension in our nation and the beginning of an explosion of something called the Vietnam conflict that led to the Vietnam War. All this was simmering and brewing underneath. But yet today, when students look back and see that period of time, they hear of the idealistic things, so much so that when I have questions events with high school students and when we study on Sunday nights together, many of the students Look at the surroundings of the world that's going on around them. And I think especially so as the events of this last week as they learn about what happened in Fort Hood. Some students are going to come tonight and say, what is up? What is going on with my world? Everything seems to be out of order. Is something broken? The chaos. Is something broken? Is something out of order? Does something need to be set right? Those of us who are believers would say, indeed, because of the rebellion of Satan and because of the fall of man, we are living in a broken world. And so, therefore, we should be looking for the one who can make things new, the one who can set things right, restoring order to what has been broken, bringing order out of chaos. This is what Jesus said about himself in Revelation 21.5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Only the one who can do that can say that. And that's the one we're supposed to be looking for, the one who can bring order. We have a remarkable opportunity in front of us. There is an open door, an open door into heaven. One that John peeked through to gaze upon things of the future. Things that we've been given the right to look into. Into the very portals of heaven. This open door that I speak of is mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. The door that John looked through. Specifically, the first time it's mentioned. And is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And with the beginning of chapter 4 is the unveiling of future things like man had never seen before. We have been given a unique opportunity to look into the future fixing our eyes upon things that up until the writing of John, only God knew that had not been revealed to man except for some very obscure writings in the book of Daniel. And when Revelation was written, the pieces of the string began to be gathered together. It's not a standalone book. It's the book what some theologians call the grand central station of the Bible because all the trains of thought come together and find their meaning and purpose in the book of Revelation. Everything is explained why all this is going on. I recall reading this stuff as a child, as a teenager specifically, and looking at it and thinking, what is up with all this symbolism? I don't get it. Even as an adult with years of intensive study behind me, I still am fascinated by the mysteries and the explanations that come out of it. This is the best way I can explain it to someone who doesn't know the book of Revelation. Looking at all the symbolism that takes place and the explanations of things that the human mind can't imagine is like someone who's never invested in the stock market, knows nothing about the stock market, opening up a Wall Street journal, picking out the Dow Jones Industrial Averages and trying to investigate and decipher what all those symbols mean. It's like looking at Greek. It makes no sense unless you understand the symbolism and what's going on behind there. So we ask this question first of all, why did John use so much symbolism? Why is there so much of this obscurity? Well, first of all, historically, if you had lived at that time, if you were part of the church of Jesus Christ in the first century, you would know that the Romans were persecuting the Christians intensely especially in this period of time when Domitian was the Caesar and ruling. And in this period of time, if the Romans discovered you with a Christian writing, you could not only be persecuted, you'd be prosecuted. And so this obscure symbolism protected those early Christians as long as they could understand what it was saying. But also, symbolism is not weakened by time. And I can explain that for you very easily. When you picture the word evil... The word evil brings about certain thoughts, but it's really hard to grasp, isn't it? The word evil is just kind of out there. But when John writes this about the word evil, when he says, a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, that immediately conjures a picture in your mind of a woman sitting with a goblet drinking blood. And John says, the blood of the saints. And that's what he uses to describe the word evil. So in that sense, symbolism is very powerful. It stood the test of time. And we can understand there's explanations that go along with it. A modern-day theologian explained it, I think, very well. His name is P.E. Hughes. This is his quote that you'll see up on the screen. There is a need for symbolism because the reality of the scenes revealed and recorded is transcendental in character. Vistas of eternity and infinity cannot be fully described by our human language which is finite and bound by time. Now, as we look at symbolism, and we'll look at it from a very biblical standpoint, 
I want to caution you to be very careful not to let your imaginations run wild. One good example of that would be when we get to study the Antichrist and the numbers 666 and what that means. In the Greek and, alpha, alpha, uh, Greek and Hebrew alphabet, letters represented numbers. For instance, in the Greek alphabet, alpha is one, beta is two, and so forth. And so John wrote as a revelation from Jesus Christ, when Antichrist appears, his name will equal 666, according to the Greek alphabet. Now, people have used that for centuries trying to say, well, it's this person or it's this person. In the first century, they immediately tried to attach it to Domitian because he was such a persecutor of the church. But Domitian died. More recently, in the 1940s and 30s, people tried to attach it to Hitler. I don't know if you know Pastor Chuck Swindoll. He's a theologian down in uh, Dallas, Texas. But about 10 years ago, somebody took the formula and actually spelled out Chuck Swindoll. He was not too thrilled about that, as you can imagine. So what we need to be careful to do is not try and be predictive because Scripture is indictive. What it's doing is it's indicating what to watch for. So we want to be careful not to get too wild. The characters, the symbols, the numbers, nearly all of them are previously encountered in the Old Testament. And so you have to understand the Old Testament to really understand the New Testament. Some symbols are explained. Let me give you an example. If you have your Bible, open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. Now, here's a symbol that's given to us or a symbolism, and the Bible itself explains what the symbol means. This is what it says, Revelation 1.20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, there's an explanation given to us right from the Bible saying, this is what that actually means. But if you go over to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 7, you'll find one that's explained from the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 4 verse 7 says this, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Where does that come from? the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel was describing the angels in heaven, specifically the seraphim. So we need the Old Testament to help us interpret this. And then there's some symbolism that is totally not explained, and that's okay. There are things about heaven that are an absolute mystery. There is a line of what can and what cannot be grasped. And I'll be very clear to say some of this is speculation, and I'll let you know when it's speculation. But very clearly, there is a line of things that can be grasped, and we're responsible to do that. Here's one more thing to keep in mind. There is a spiritual code to the book of Revelation. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, that's inbred within you because you have the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said specifically speaking to Daniel all the way back in the Old Testament about people who do not belong to God trying to understand Scripture. Look up on the screen. Daniel 12.9 says this. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged. 
purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand, speaking about the end times. Now, more specifically, in the New Testament, this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is why unbelievers, those who do not belong to Jesus Christ, cannot comprehend easily the book of Revelation. It is a mystery to them. It was meant for you. It was written to those who claim Jesus Christ, written to the church. The symbols and the visions are meant for us because we have spiritual eyes to see. And we need, and this is a caution, to approach this book as wanderers and worshipers, not just as academic students. There's a great danger in deciphering and trying to figure out what all this means here and there, but also to attach with it the wonder and the majesty and the awesomeness of our God. That comes out of the book of Revelation. After doing our speed tour through the book of Exodus, this is going to feel like we're slamming the brakes on, okay? Because we're going to take it very slowly. As a matter of fact, we're only going to get through three verses today. We're not always only going to do three verses, okay? But today, we're going to only do three verses. Let's talk first about the authorship, John. He was a man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 disciples, the Apostle John, we call him, the last living apostle. And he found himself on an island, an island called Patmos. If you've read Revelation before, you might be familiar with this island. This is what it looks like today. It's a stony beach, a barren land. There are 3,000 people today who make their home on the island of Patmos. At the time of John's life, it was a Roman prison colony, a penal system, a place where they banished those who they did not want part of society. What's he doing there? The emperor Domitian, Titus Flavius Domitian, one who considered himself God on earth. As a matter of fact, this is the title that he took for himself, Dominus et Deus Noster. And every time someone entered his presence, they had to do this, Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and our God. That was his favorite title for himself. So can you imagine Christians in his presence, even if he rode by on his chariot, had to bow, Dominus Adeus Noster, or they would face the wrath of Caesar. John refused to bow the knee. And so we find him banished to this island. And by this point in time, he's a very old man. As a matter of fact, all whom he knew that were followers of Christ, whom he trained with, the disciples, are dead by this point. John is the last living disciple, and he's somewhere in his 80s. Now, a man who was young was only expected to live one year on this island of Patmos because there was a stone quarry there, and all the inmates were forced to work in the stone quarry. And yet, John in his 80s is on this island where they do hard labor. Were they making him work every day? We don't know. But life expectancy wasn't very long. 
What's he doing here? He refused to bow the knee to Domitian. And Domitian took it very seriously and had him arrested, banished to this island, and the same persecution that he was feeling as, near, as, as Domitian was forcing his heel down on John's neck, the churches were beginning to feel. The seven churches of Asia Minor were also coming under persecution. And John, at the time of the beginning of the greatest persecution, wrote this letter called the Book of Revelation, what we call the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus specifically said, I know how nasty it is to live in the time that you're living in. In Revelation chapter 2, this is what he wrote about a pastor in a church. Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus looked at the realm of where these churches were at and said, Satan's throne is there. I know. And I know one of your pastors has been killed as a result of this. I know what it's like where you're at, going through wicked, hard times. So these people were living in an abusive time. Let's talk just for a minute about credibility. On February 1st, when we launched this series, the first Sunday we spent an entire day just looking at why can we believe that the Bible is true? How do we know that it can be authenticated? And we studied all the extra biblical source material. Two of those individuals that I referred to write specifically about the book of Revelation. And in particular, they write about John as being the author. And I just want you to see this as background for this material. The first one is a man named, by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus was what you might consider a grandson of John in the faith. John discipled a man by the name of Polycarp. How'd you like that for a name? Polycarp. And Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. This is what Irenaeus wrote about John. And if anyone will devote a close attention to those things which are stated by the prophets with regard to the time of the end, and those which John the disciple of the Lord saw in the apocalypse, he will find that the nations are to receive the same plagues universally as Egypt then did particularly. He wrote that in A.D. 125. There's another man who wrote also about John. His name was Tertullian in the second century. But we do confess that a kingdom is promised to, uh, to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem, let down from heaven, which the apostle also calls our mother from above. This both Ezekiel had knowledge of and the apostle John beheld. So what we find in the first century church, the early church fathers regarded John as the author of this book, and the things that he saw, they fully accepted. And it's been handed down to us generation after generation. For those of you that love historical detail, it appears that this book was actually written somewhere between A.D. 94 and A.D. 96, in the final years of the reign of Titus Flavius Domitian, Caesar of Rome. This historical setting, as we step into this, is one in which the seven churches that existed this time in Asia Minor were under incredible persecution. 
they were feeling the storm of persecution. And it was about to break out in full wrath in which people were snatched from the pews and hauled off and thrown into the Colosseums to be fed to the lions for gladiator battles. It's very real circumstances. And so there's a message in the midst of this this morning. The same message that they heard is true for us today. Though evil seems absolutely chaotic and in control, perverse and rampant, God is on his throne, and he's in control of all the events that surround us. That's what the early church needed to be reminded of, and that's what you need to be reminded of. As chaotic as things can seem, God is still in control. So open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to take on the first three verses. If you don't have your Bible with you, you will not only see it up on the screen, but there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. About this point in the first service, people started looking at their watches saying, oh my goodness, it's like 25 minutes into the message and we're just doing verse 1. Well, suck it up, okay? (laughs) There's very clear evidence that when this document was written, that the early church, the first church to receive it, listened to it in one entire setting. All 22 chapters. So you think you got it bad? Okay? 22 chapters in one setting. Paper was rare. Ink was rare. They were lucky if an entire church had one copy of God's word. And so they listened eagerly. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, the apocalypsis. If it sounds very familiar to a word that you use in the English language, apocalypse, that's because we've taken it and corrupted it. Apocalypsis actually means this. You'll see the definition on the screen. It's a disclosure, the appearing or manifestation to be revealed, the unveiling. So it doesn't mean catastrophe, it means the unveiling. And so over time, it was corrupted to mean the unveiling of a catastrophe, and people associated it just with the word apocalypse, catastrophe. Now, specifically, to expose in full view that which was formerly hidden. And when this word, apocalypsis, is attached to a person, it means to make everything about that person known, to reveal them. So the revelation or the apocalypsis of Jesus Christus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, referring to a specific person. And that's where we get the title destiny of the world. Jesus, apocalypsis, everything, unveiling it all, opening up the curtain and letting us look behind it and see what's going on. In the Old Testament, when Daniel was given prophecy, he was told to close up the book and to seal everything. Look up on the screen, Daniel 12.4. Close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Daniel was told to close up and not let people know the things of the end. Until when? Until the increasing of knowledge. Are you living in the time of increased knowledge? So therefore, what Daniel was told was the opposite of what John was told. Look up on the screen at Revelation 22.10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Why? Since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, 
since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, since the arrival of the Holy Spirit, God has ushered in a whole new age. And he is revealing because civilization has advanced. We are increasing in knowledge. The end of the time is near. So it was sealed for a period of time. So what had been concealed is now made known. So we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Merrill Tenney said this specifically about Jesus' role in the book of Revelation. He is not incidental to its action. He is its chief subject. Revelation from Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, showed him in his humiliation. Revelation shows him in his exaltation. Look at verse 1 again. Which God gave him to show to his bondservants. Okay, stop and think about that one word, God gave him. In what sense is the book of Revelation a gift? How is it a gift from God? God tells God, we're going to give this amazing information. Did God need to give it to Jesus? Jesus had ascended to the throne, sitting at the right hand of the Father, fully God, omniscient. Did God need to tell God, hey, this is what I'm going to be doing. By the way, I've written this book called Revelation. No. This is a gift from God to his bond servants. You. You are called the bond servants of Christ. Look with me specifically at what a bond servant is. The word is doulos. You see it up on the screen. You are a very special group of people. Slaves of a special type. One who serves out of love. Devotion to his master. Voluntary frequently in a qualified sense of subserviency. Where does the word bondservant come from? It comes from the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when a man was given his freedom who had been a slave, if he said, I don't want to be free, I want to be with my master, they were pierced through the ear. Look with me up on the screen, Exodus 21.5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So you are the doulos. You are the ones who have voluntarily assigned yourself to Christ. He's given you the Spirit the ability to see things that other people can't see, and you are called his bondservants, and so he decides to reveal to you what? What must happen soon. Look back at verse 1 again. The things which must soon take place. Now, in what sense does he mean the word soon? I mean, because John's been dead like 2,000 years now, and people have been saying soon for a long time. The word is entekai. I want you to look at the definition so you really understand what this means, because this is challenged all the time in Scripture. This is challenged all the time in your office environment, I dare say, because this is what was written. Revelation 2, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3.3 3 says this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Everything's the same. I mean, what does soon mean? Go back to the definition of entekai. Guys, will you bring that back up on the screen for me? Entekai. In 
haste, quickly, a brief space of time, here's the way you're supposed to apply it. It means when the events begin to happen, when the trigger is pulled, they will happen very quickly. They will unfold seven years span of time. Earth exists for a long time, thousands of years since this stuff was written. But what's going to happen when it begins to happen is going to happen in rapid succession. That's what entekai means. The things that will take place will happen rapidly. So the last part of verse 1, things, what things? Specifically, what things? The judgments of God are never hidden in the book of Revelation. They're played out very clearly. What you will experience in heaven, what people on earth will experience, <clears throat> excuse me, will experience, and the wrath of God's judgment. As a matter of fact, you never read of the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world in the book of Revelation without reading the wrath of the Lamb. You don't see the God who will wipe away tears from their eyes without seeing God the destroyer. You have this constant balance, counterbalance, like we talked about in the book of Exodus. Those are the things. The water of life, the lake of fire. God dealing justly with his people and dealing justly with those who are far from him. Constant balance, counterbalance, and the struggle is titanic as hordes of demons and Satan himself comes in full fury against the planet earth and as God unleashes all of his wrath. It is an awesome thing to behold. But a brighter day is coming. But first, the thunder of God's voice will be heard once again. The same thunder that the people experienced on Mount Sinai. God says, I will shake the earth once more in the last days. In just seven years, God will bring this all to close. Now look with me at verse 1 again. It says, and he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. And that makes this unique in all of Scripture. This text that you hold right here was the first text in the New Testament to be delivered from an angel from God to Jesus, to an angel, to John, to us, the church. There is no other book in the New Testament that's written that way. So you have this link in the chain, God to Christ, Christ to an angel, an angel to his bondservant John, who delivered it to the church, specifically given. Jesus confirms it this way in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So right out of the gate, we have the mention of angels. And if you love detail, you're going to find 67 times in this book, angels are studied or understood or explained in some way. And notice this little detail. John, just as an aside, calls himself the same thing that you're called a bondservant, a doulos. He's right there with us. He's not elevating himself because he's an apostle. So he says this in verse 2 as we wrap this up. Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The testimony of Jesus Christ was what he saw. He associates the testimony of Jesus Christ with the word. And so he raises those to the two highest 
elevations, elevations possible, the first thing he wants us to know, this is the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the Word of God. He wanted us to get that down. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.20 says this about the interpretation of prophecy. He know, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So lest you think this is a product of John's imagination, this is a bad piece of pizza, this is a bad experience he had, it's part of the canon of Scripture and church for far too long, the church has neglected the teaching of the book of Revelation. It is the word of God. So to neglect Revelation is to neglect God's word. We don't want to do that. So specifically, we're going to pay attention because we're promised a blessing as a result of what we're about to do. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. <clears throat> and heed the things which were written in it. John wrote this anticipating full acceptance by the church. Now, there's a detail within this verse that you need to pay attention to because it applies specifically to you. He said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear. He's speaking of a first century church service in which one person stood up and read the whole thing like we talked about, all 22 chapters perhaps the first time. And those who hear the words of this prophecy, and there's a second component to it, and heeds the things which are written in it. So I'm blessed if I read it to you. You are blessed if you hear it. It's a book of the Bible that promises a blessing just for listening to it and heeding it. In Old Testament and in New Testament tradition in a Jewish synagogue, if someone read the Word of God, it was called performing a mitzuah. And the mitzuah was a blessing upon you if you listened to the Word of God. And so they immediately associate this with the Word of God by saying, this is a mitzuah. You've got a blessing as a result of it. But look very closely with me at the definition for the word heed, tereo to watch, to guard, to keep the eye upon. That means you have a responsibility. You may not have known you had this responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are to be watching for the return of Christ. You are to be heeding the things that are written in this book. And I'm going to give you an assignment to go along with it. We are told that the word heed means to obey. We are to obey the things that are written in the book of Revelation. So a task for you throughout the study of this series is that you should list down the things that you discover that we are to obey. I'm not going to give them to you. You'll discover them along the way, the things that God has said. I want you to heed this. Why? He wraps up the verse by saying this, for the time is near. Not chronos. If you're wearing a watch, that's a chronos. If you're looking at the clock up there, it says 1208. That's a chronos. It's not the word chronos. The word is kairos, 
And this is what it means. An occasion or proper time, a season, a short while. Meaning, the season of Jesus Christ's arrival, the epoch, it's called, is near. And when it happens, it will happen very quickly in a seven-year succession of time. And we, as the church, are supposed to be watching for it and obeying and heeding. The type of the end has been foretold. We have the responsibility of watching for it. So you might ask this question this morning. Besides getting a blessing out of hearing the Word of God, what do I get out of it? What am I going to learn as a result of this? Next week when you come back, there will be a study guide that will be given out to everybody. It will show you where we're going. There's some fill-in-the-blanks. There's some things that will guide you and some extra reading that you can do if you want to along the way. But this is the things that I noted this week as a benchmark, as the highlights. Just listen to these bullet points as I read them to you of the things that you're going to learn and understand more deeply as a result of this study. The final political setup of this world, the Antichrist, we're going to study that in depth in chapter 13. The ultimate defeat of demons and Satan. The rapture of the church. The seven-year tribulation. The great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the seven years. The battle of Armageddon. The second coming of Christ. The thousand-year earthly kingdom of Jesus. The final judgment of unbelievers, what we call the great white throne judgment. The lake of fire the new heaven and the new earth, the rewards to the believers. Did you know you get rewards? You get stuff. That's what it talks about in Scripture. Based on how faithful you serve God, there are rewards for the believers. The new heaven and the new earth, the new heavenly city, and the reappearance of the tree of life. When's the last time you heard about the tree of life? Genesis before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and it reappears in the book of Revelation, the tree of life. And lastly, there is a deep warning for the church, for complacency, for the temptation just to rest and kick back. When Revelation says, <laughs> you should be inspired. Whatever you do as we study this together, Get to know Jesus better. It plays it out in such a magnificent way that you can't help but step away from this saying, my Lord and my God. So let's not just be academic students. Let's be passionate followers of Christ because knowledge is power and you're going to be equipped with things that many people don't know. And as a result of the things that you're equipped with, you need to translate that information into passion for those who are far from God. Would you pray with me? Father, just by sitting here in this last hour, we have learned things that many people will never bother to look at. And yet we, we hunger for more and we desire to know more. You can created within us an insatiable appetite for future things. We want to know what's coming. But God, in the midst of that desire, we ask that you help us to keep our focus on your majesty and your glory and your faithfulness. 
You are true to do what you said you will do. Give us the confidence and the reassurance that we can walk boldly before you and before our fellow man, proclaiming this truth, knowing that it will indeed happen. And Tekai, we believe it will happen soon, Father, in the way that you meant it to happen. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that as we leave this room, not only will we go out of here more boldly for you, but we will go out of here more passionate for those who are far from you. God, we ask this in the mighty name of our King of Kings, our soon-returning Jesus. Amen.